Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce myself and why I decided to start this podcast in the first place. I'm a film historian who writes about stardom and genre in classical Hollywood cinema. My interest in screwball comedy began nearly 15 years ago when I worked at a local video store, spending most of my wages on DVDs. That invaluable self-education propelled me to eventually study film in college and later culminated in me teaching film history as well as my first book about the queen of screwball comedy, Carol Lombard. 2024 marks the 90th anniversary of the releases of the so-called first screwball comedies. It happened one night in 20th century. This podcast gives me an opportunity to celebrate the important cinematic milestone and share my love for the genre with all of you. So, in that spirit, let's begin. For our inaugural episode, there's no better place to start than one of those first screwball films, It Happened One Night, from 1934. Directed by Frank Capra and produced by Columbia Pictures, it stars Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, Walter Connolly, and Roscoe Carnes. It Happened One Night tells the story of a Park Avenue heiress named Ellie Andrews, who runs away from her overbearing father while on a boat trip in Florida after he learns that she eloped with her gold-digging boyfriend, King Wesley. She boards a Greyhound bus in Miami, where she meets a newspaper man named Peter Warren. Peter recognizes Ellie from her photographs and makes her an offer. He'll help her return to New York safely so she can be reunited with King Wesley if she gives him an exclusive scoop that can be used to sell papers. Ellie accepts, and in true screwball fashion, along their journey, they fall in love. It Happened One Night was adapted from a short story called Night Bus by Samuel Hopkins Adams that Columbia Pictures head Harry Cohen bought from Cosmopolitan Magazine for $5,000. This property was not Frank Capra nor screenwriter Robert Riskin's first choice. They aimed to follow up their 1933 hit Lady for a Day with the period adventure Mutiny on the Bounty, but Harry Cohen refused. Mutiny on the Bounty was a popular novel and the rights were simply too expensive. Dejected by Cohen's decision, Capra and Riskin reluctantly settled for Night Bus. Riskin worked on adapting the screenplay in the fall of 1933 and was set on using Adam's original title. Cohen, however, was unimpressed and instructed him and Capra to come up with something a bit punchier. They eventually settled on the simple yet provocative title that we know today. Riskin took inspiration for Ellie's elopement from the real-life story of Woolworth heiress Barbara Hutton whose June 1933 elopement with Prince Alexis Medvani became headline news across the country. In Adam's original story, Night Bus, Peter was an upper-middle-class chemist who was forced to take odd jobs thanks to the Great Depression. Riskin initially made him an artist, but after a suggestion from reporter Miles Connolly, his profession was changed once again to a newspaper man. Peter's background initially made him closer in ideology and class to Ellie, but by making him an ordinary everyman, 
the film cultivates tension that becomes the perfect jumping off point for their unconventional romance. The first hurdle that Capra faced when trying to get his film off the ground was casting. The major problem was that, in combination with Columbia's Poverty Row reputation, where no Big Five studio actor would voluntarily work, at first glance, Riskin's script appeared, well, a bit thin. Neither lead character read like meaty starring roles. And besides, who would be interested in a story about a man and woman meeting on a bus? For Peter Warren, Capra was initially keen on Robert Montgomery, but his home studio, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, already had him attached to a road drama called Fugitive Lovers. Capra was assigned Clark Gable, another star on loan from MGM. Hollywood legend has it that Gable was assigned to the film as a sort of punishment for rejecting scripts assigned to him and for his not-so-secret affair with his frequent co-star Joan Crawford. In a 1977 interview with journalist Brian Linehan, Capra explains that he and Harry Cohen were ready to put the film on hold when one day Cohen received a phone call from MGM head Louis B. Mayer. Actually, we were calling. We were we were, we were calling the picture off. We couldn't cast it. No girl wanted to play it. Um, no man wanted to play it. I don't know. We couldn't. We couldn't cast it. When we suddenly got this call from Mr. Louis B. Mayer, who said, I, "I've got just the man for you." For, for and, and Harry Cohen says, "No, we're not going to make the picture." He says, "Harry, I'm 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 asking you to make the picture. I want to I want to punish." A boy I have out here, an actor, I want to punish him. You take him. So we had to make the picture in order that Louis Mayer could punish Clark, Clark Gable. Unfortunately for Capra, Gable wasn't happy to be working on It Happened One Night and eagerly voiced his displeasure. Capra recalled, Gable did not want to do the film because he was uh, he was being sent to Siberia. He had some argument with Mr. Louis Mayer, and Mr. Louis Mayer was punishing him. Uh, the punishment for these great stars at MGM was to send them to Poverty Row, Gower Gulch, around where, where I worked, and, and let, them make, let them make a picture down there with the, with the, with the, with the Hoi Polloi. And see, then they'd like MGM more, you see. Gable may have been miserable about being exiled to Columbia for it happened one night, but recent research confirms that his casting was much more straightforward than Hollywood legend would suggest. Louis B. Mayer was not pleased with Gable's insubordination, but MGM also didn't have him assigned to any film at the time. Sending Gable to Columbia was ultimately a financial decision for the studio. They charged Columbia $2,500 per week for his services, earning them a $500 profit on the $2,000 he was receiving at his home studio. This was not an uncommon practice for Columbia. Harry Cohen frequently negotiated loan-out deals with the bigger Hollywood studios because in the early 1930s, Columbia didn't have a roster of top talent under contract. With Gable reluctantly committed to the film, Capra now had the task of finding a leading lady. He was allegedly turned down by several actresses, including Myrna Loy, Miriam Hopkins, Margaret Sullivan, and Constance Bennett. Eventually, he approached Paramount star Claudette Colbert, who he had previously directed in her first film, the 1927 silent romantic drama For the Love of Mike. That film received poor critical reviews and underperformed at the box office, so Colbert initially had reservations about working with Capra again. 
Gable's casting sweetened the deal for her, as did her salary of $50,000, plus the promise of additional payments if the production went into overtime. Like Gable, she reluctantly signed on. In the studio's three-way trade deal, Columbia also received John Barrymore from MGM and Carol Lombard from Paramount for the Howard Hawks comedy, 20th Century. Securing Gable and Colbert for It Happened One Night was an advertising dream. In exhibitor trade papers, Columbia ran ads proclaiming, Columbia's getting the stars. There's none of them too big for Columbia now. With both lead roles cast, Capra began filming. Gable and Colbert continued to voice their displeasure with their parts. Gable allegedly showed up to the first day shooting drunk, telling Capra that he might as well be working in Siberia. Meanwhile, according to Capra, Claudette Colbert allegedly threw tantrums on set and refused to show her legs in the famous hitchhiking scene. She was persuaded to cooperate when Capra threatened to bring in a body double, but he later admitted that she was quote-unquote wonderful in the part. Apart from Gable and Colbert's difficult behavior, the production didn't face any substantial hurdles and was completed in four weeks at a cost of $325,000. It happened one night previewed at the Colorado Theater in Pasadena on January 28, 1934, and was released a few weeks later on February 22nd to generally positive critical reviews. Some critics panned the story's improbability, but most recognized its charm and quaintness. Movie Classic Magazine called it a delightful romantic comedy, while Film Daily surmised that it would become one of the 10 best pictures of the year. The New York Times film critic Morton Hall wrote that there is a, quote, welter of improbable accidents that managed to generate plenty of laughter. He also praised Colbert for giving an engaging and lively performance, while Gable was described as just plain excellent. Early ticket sales in big urban centers gave Columbia cause for concern. Despite grossing a record $90,000 during its first week at Radio City Music Hall, it dropped down to $75,000 and was pulled during only its second week. However, It Happened One Night proved to be a box office boom in smaller markets across the country, leading it to become Columbia's highest grossing film of 1934, with over a million dollars in film rentals. It Happened One Night's success made 1934 Columbia's most profitable year on record, proving that although escapist glamour was the trend du jour, depression-weary audiences were also receptive to a sentimental boy-meets-girl love story. The film's success was capped off with five Academy Award wins at the 1935 ceremony. Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Picture. Frank Capra and Robert Riskin were on hand to accept their awards, as was Clark Gable, who gave a brief speech thanking his director and co-star. It's rather difficult for me to say anything at this time, naturally. However, I do want to take this opportunity of expressing my thanks and sincere gratitude to Mr. Frank Capra, the director of It Happened One Night, and Miss Claudette Colbert, who was gracious enough to co-star with me in that same picture. Thank you. Claudette Colbert was noticeably absent. She was so convinced that one of the other nominees, either Betty Davis, Norma Shearer, or Grace Moore, would win the Best Actress Award that she set off to the railroad station for a cross-country trip to New York. 
When she was informed that she had won, she rushed across town to the Biltmore Hotel, fur coat in hand, wearing a simple suit that Paramount designer Travis Banton had made specifically for her trip. Colbert gave a flustered but gracious acceptance speech. Against all odds, she and the rest of the cast and crew had pulled off the unthinkable. They created a film that was charming, with just enough populist sentimentality to balance the zany romance. It Happened One Night likely resonated so profoundly with audiences because it was endearing in its representation of the leading romance, as well as its politics. Peter and Ellie are from different worlds and have opposing ideologies. He represents what Charles J. Mallon calls the middle-class virtue, while she the wild abandon of the upper classes. Their characterization is strengthened by the weight of Gable and Colbert's respective star personas. Clark Gable, or the King as he was later crowned, was a Hollywood he-man, personifying the virility and ego of 1930s masculinity. But off the screen, he was an atypical Hollywood star. He came from a working-class Midwestern family and got his start working in the Oklahoma oil fields. He balked at the King mythology, and famously called it bullshit, preferring instead to spend his time hunting, fishing, and tinkering on his large collection of cars. Gable gives Peter an earthy quality. His sharp, no-nonsense attitude makes him the ideal man of the people and the perfect foil for Ellie's childlike inhibition. Perhaps played by another actress, Ellie's ego might have come across as entirely unsympathetic, but Claudette Colbert's delicate, sensual appeal is disarming. Colbert was born in France and reared in New York, and her parents indulged her creative mind from an early age. She had ambitions to become a fashion designer and attended the Art Students League of New York before beginning her acting career on Broadway in the Anne Morrison play The Wild Westcotts from 1923. Like Ellie, Colbert was sophisticated and refined, but unlike her character, she was also a perfectionist who personified what it means to be a movie star. Colbert gives Ellie a worldly quality that comes across in her fiery temperament. Ellie knows what she wants, and like Colbert, she's determined to do whatever it takes to achieve her goals. Peter is initially turned off by Ellie's snobbiness, even giving her the unflattering nickname Brat. But It Happened One Night is not a rich versus poor morality tale that some later screwball comedies lean into, nor does it portray Ellie as deliberately aloof. The film pokes fun at her snobbery via Peter, and his patronizing commentary about her ignorance is less about her personally and more about her upbringing and social class. Take, for example, Peter and Ellie's exchange while at a rest stop in Jacksonville. Ellie tells the bus driver that she's going to be a few minutes late and he should wait for her. Of course, he doesn't. And when Ellie returns fashionably late, she realizes that the bus is left without her. She finds Peter waiting for her at the station, amused by her ignorance. What time is the next bus? Eight o'clock tonight. Eight o'clock? That's 12 hours. Sorry, miss. What's the matter? Wouldn't the old meanies wait for you? What are you so excited about? You missed it, too. Yeah, I missed it, too. Don't tell me you did it on my account. I hope you haven't any idea that what happened last night is... Now, look here, young man. You needn't concern yourself about me. I can take care of myself. You're doing a pretty sloppy job of it. 
Here's your ticket. My ticket? I found it on the seat. When Ellie gets indignant, Peter offers her advice and is quick to point out that she hasn't done a good job taking care of herself on her own. You know, I've always been curious to know what kind of a girl would marry a front-page aviator like King Wesley. Take my advice. Grab the next bus back to Miami. That guy's a fool. I didn't ask for your advice. That's right. You did. You're not going to notify my father, are you? What for? probably could get some money out of him. Yeah, I never thought of that. Listen, if you promise not to do it, I'll pay you. I'll pay you as much as he will. He won't gain anything by giving me away as long as I'm willing to make it worth your while. I've got to get to New York without being stopped. It's terribly important to me. I'd pay you now, only the only thing I had when I jumped off the yacht was a wristwatch, and I had to pawn that to get these clothes. But I'll give you my address, and you can get in touch with me the minute you get to New York. Never mind. You know, I had you pegged right from the jump. There's a spoiled brat of a rich father. The only way you get anything is to buy it, isn't it? You're in a jam, and all you can think of is your money. It never fails, does it? Ever hear of the word humility? No, you wouldn't. I guess it never occurred to you to just say, please, mister, I'm in trouble. Will you help me? No. That'd bring you down off your high horse for a minute. But let me tell you something. Maybe it'll take a load off your mind. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not interested in your money or your problem. You, King Wesley, your father, you're all a lot of hooey to me. Unlike later screwball comedies like My Man Godfrey or Easy Living that depict the rich characters as buffoons, Ellie's character is handled with some degree of sympathy. Her privileged upbringing has rendered her basically incapable of the most simple life skills. From spending all of her money in one afternoon to not knowing how to properly dunk a donut in a cup of coffee, there's an undertone of paternal scolding in Peter's exasperation as if he was trying to make up for the missing life lesson that Ellie failed to receive from her overbearing father. At one point, when the pair are journeying by foot, they reach a river. Peter picks up Ellie and begins to carry her on his left shoulder. She giddily exclaims that it's the first time in years that she's ridden piggyback. Bemused, but mostly annoyed, Peter replies, This isn't piggyback. Of course it is. You're crazy. I remember distinctly my father taking me for a piggyback ride. Yeah. And he carried you like this, I suppose? Yes. Your father didn't know beans about piggyback riding. My uncle, mother's brother, has four children, and I've seen them ride piggyback. I bet there isn't a good piggyback rider in your whole family. I never knew a rich man yet who could piggyback ride. You're prejudiced. You show me a good piggybacker, and I'll show you a real human. Now, you take Abraham Lincoln, for instance, a natural-born piggybacker. Where do you get off of that stuffed shirt family of yours? The 1930s class consciousness is neatly distilled in the contrast between Peter's common sense and Ellie's naivete. Film historian Linda Mizdewski points out that Peter uses it as another opportunity to make fun of Ellie's upper class background and contrast it with quote unquote real people who actually know how to properly piggyback. His blunt commentary is just the social education that she needs. Along their journey, Ellie comes to understand that marrying King Wesley was an impulsive mistake, simply done in an effort to gain much-needed independence and get back at her father. For Peter, Ellie unknowingly represents the type of woman that he's always been looking for. Someone who's up for spontaneous adventure, who he says, if given the chance, would, quote, jump in the surf and love it as much as I do. He too goes through a period of discovery realizing that his ideal woman has been with him the entire time. 
It happened when night succeeds precisely because these moments of self-discovery are bathed in pathos, in a way that's humorous, relatable, and honest. One thing to consider when discussing the early screwball comedies like It Happened One Night or 20th Century is that while they are the foundational screwball texts, at the time of their release, they were not considered screwball films. The term screwball comedy did not enter popular cinematic lexicon until a 1936 variety review of My Man Godfrey describing lead actress Carol Lombard's performance. At the time, these films were known either as romantic comedies or just plain comedies. Screwball filmmakers and writers were unknowingly creating a new form of cinematic language, one that was responding to the socioeconomic and cultural landscape of the Great Depression. In a tribute to Frank Capra at the 1982 AFI Lifetime Achievement Awards, Claudette Colbert recalled what it said it happened one night apart from other Depression-era films. I remember Clark and I kept wondering, you know, even though we were enjoying every scene, we thought, what kind of reception can this kind of picture actually get? And then, you see, what I must remind you is that this was shot in 1933, really right in the midst of the big depression. The theater was dying, but talking pictures were making money. People needed fantasy, they needed they needed a dream of splendor and glamour, and Hollywood gave it to them. And there we were, looking rather seedy, riding on a bus, <laughs> with a funny little man with obviously bad sinuses singing the flying young man on the, on the, no, the daring young man on the flying trapeze. Every studio copied it. And I, I know what I'm talking about because I was in quite a few of them. <laughs> Colbert's historization might be slightly inaccurate, but she gets to the heart of the everyday relatable ethos running through the screwball genre. Some of screwball's most popular stories take place in spaces that are inhabited by the rich, like hotels, nightclubs, and transatlantic ocean liners. But these films don't necessarily celebrate the rich. In Gregory Lacava's 1939 film, Fifth Avenue Girl, Ginger Rogers' character Mary reminds us that rich people are just poor people with money, a line that vividly encapsulates the genre's take on wealth and prosperity. Both are fleeting, and neither are a measure of happiness or success. The grim reality of the Depression is ever-present in Screwball, and punctures through even some of the genre's most joyful and light-hearted moments. In It Happened One Night, the passenger's peaceful journey is interrupted by the fearful screams of a young boy at the front of the bus, whose mother has just fainted from hunger. Oh, she flies through the air with the greatest of these. Ma! Ma! What's the matter with you? Your money. I spent it all in a ticket. 
We don't know what's going to be so much. <laughs> we should not come, I guess. <laughs> My father, there was a job waiting for in New York. And if we didn't go, he might lose us. <laughs> She'll be all right when she says something to me. Here, here, honey. The next town we come to, you buy some food. Now, come on. I shouldn't order take this. Paul gets mad. Just don't tell her anything about it. You don't want her to get sick again, do you? No, but you might need it. Come on. I got business. Come on. Thanks. Come on, go back in. At the auto camp, long lines snake outside the facility's one set of showers as tired travelers aim to freshen up ahead of their long journey. In these scenes, Capra focuses his camera on Ellie, the one privileged character that's out of place in this economic milieu. Time and again, she's smacked in the face with Depression-era poverty, something that she seldom thought of or even encountered. And this fact's made clear when she ignorantly walks past the line and opens the shower door on a fellow guest. Are the showers in there? Well, they ain't out here. Thank you. Linda Mistjewski observes that Capra's populism was, at times, a bit messy. The film suggests a solidarity among its working-class characters that's ultimately undercut by those very same people. Film critic Richard A. Blake points out that most of the people that Peter and Ellie encounter along their bus journey are, in his words, depression-hardened Americans, like the extortionist Oscar Shapley, the petty thief who steals Ellie's suitcase full of her money, and even the burly motel owner who tries to throw Ellie out of her cabin for being unmarried. Elizabeth Kendall describes Capra's populism as complicated, intense, and not particularly clear to himself, a political conundrum that Juliana Muschio says locates society's faults at the feet of the individual, not the system in which they live. This is evident in Ellie's transformation. It's Peter, the private citizen, who rouses her out of her privileged slumber. Thanks to Peter, Ellie becomes a more caring and conscious American. A final material reality in any discussion of Screwball is the production code. Since this is the first episode in this series, and the code is a topic we'll frequently return to, I'd like to offer a brief explanation of its history and function. The production code was a list of guidelines that was designed for the film industry to self-regulate form and content during the studio era. It came about because the Hollywood studios were facing increased pressure from the Catholic Church and conservative social groups to clean up the movies. In 1915, a Supreme Court case called the Mutual Decision made it so films were not protected under the First Amendment, leaving American film corporations vulnerable to the looming threat of federal censorship legislation. In the subsequent years, studios contended with overzealous state censors that would edit and even block the release of films as they saw fit, as well as public campaigns from religious organizations to boycott the movies. Eventually, the Hollywood studios and their industry trade association, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, 
realized that they had no choice but to respond to this external pressure. In March 1930, they created the Production Code as a sort of catch-all guide that mirrored the conservative morality of the industry's most ardent critics. The code included provisions about the representation of topics like crime, sex, vulgarity, religion, and costumes. While filmmakers during the studio era had no choice but to abide by the code to the letter, they frequently pushed its boundaries in spirit through innuendo, crafty cinematography, and editing. From its conception until its uniform enforcement in July 1934, the code was administered by the Studio Relations Committee under the oversight of Jason Joy and James Wingate. Although some view Hollywood's pre-code era as relatively unencumbered by the censor's gaze, in reality, script and release print submission was mandatory by late 1931. Having been released in February of 1934, It Happened One Night has the unique distinction of being one of a handful of pre-code screwball comedies. Although Capra had to submit his script revisions to the Studio Relations Committee, unlike post-1934 filmmakers, he was given a bit more leeway with his material. Production code records show that It Happened One Night did not face any substantial code-related pushback. The famous hitchhiking scene is quite obvious in its provocation, but The Walls of Jericho is perhaps the most iconic code workaround. At the auto camp, a wave of self-consciousness washes over Ellie as she realizes that she has no privacy in her and Peter's one-room accommodation. How will she sleep with a stranger mere feet away from her? Peter comes up with an impromptu solution. He fastens a string between their two beds with a blanket over top as a makeshift divider. Feeling amused by his own ingenuity, he tells her, Behold the walls of Jericho. Uh, maybe not as thick as the ones that Joshua blew down with his trumpet but a lot safer. You see, uh, I have no trumpet. Still wary, Ellie rushes to her bed behind the flimsy privacy of the walls of Jericho, away from Peter and his trumpet. On his side of the room, Peter casually puffs away on his cigarette and jokingly tells her, Still with me, Brett? Ah, don't be a sucker. Good night's rest will do you a lot of good. Besides, you got nothing to worry about. The walls of Jericho will protect you from the big bad wolf. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? The big bad wolf? The big bad wolf? She's afraid of the big bad wolf. Tra la 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 la. After Peter switches off the light, Ellie finds the courage she needs to undress and put on the pair of pajamas he has loaned her. Under the costume provision in the code, nudity, in either fact or silhouette, was not permitted, and undressing scenes like this were to be avoided unless essential to a film's plot. Capra responded to this rule by giving us a point-of-view shot of the blanket from Peter's bed. We see it rustling. By using the disturbed blanket to convey to viewers that Ellie is undressing on the other side, Capra follows the code to the letter, but still tantalizes us through the power of visual suggestion. After undressing, Ellie tosses her negligee and underwear over top the blanket, and the camera cuts to a close-up of Peter, looking up intently at the garments. He purses his lips in amusement and murmurs, If you take those things off the walls of Jericho... Oh, you did. Screwball comedy scholar Stanley Cavell explains how this scene is ripe with symbolism, from Joshua's trumpet representing Peter's lust, to the walls of Jericho blanket as Ellie's virginity, or even her resistance to Peter's attraction. 
By relegating the sexual tension between Peter and Ellie to such biblical symbols, Riskin sidesteps any possible criticism that the film was flaunting an immoral affair, something that the code explicitly prohibited. And yet, in the absence of sex, or even physical contact, visually speaking, it's an incredibly alluring scene. The combination of the rustling blanket, Ellie's negligee, and the soft moonlight that bathes the inside of their cabin help to light the ignition on their slow burn romance. The sexual tension that builds in this scene helps set the ongoing use of the symbolism. About midway through the film, while laying in bed in another auto camp along their journey, Peters just described his ideal woman that I mentioned earlier. Ellie comes out from behind the blanket and gives him a longing stare. At this point, the walls of Jericho are crumbling. Finally, the film concludes with an external shot of yet another auto camp, where the newly married Mr. and Mrs. Warren are honeymooning. Victoria's trumpet music plays, symbolizing Peter's successful conquest. As the camera cuts to a shot inside the cabin, we see the blanket drop to the ground. Joshua's trumpet has prevailed, and the walls of Jericho have finally fallen. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at The Screwball Story, or me, I'm The Screwball Girl. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye! <laughs>